And somebody read 15 to 18. 30, I'm sorry. Let's try that again. Isaiah 30, verses 15 to 18. If you find 15 to 18 and 31, I will give you a prize. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness uh, and confidence you shall, uh, shall be your strength. But you would not, and you, and you said, No, for we will flee on horses, therefore you shall flee. And we will ride on swift horses, there, therefore those who pursue you shall be swift. One thousand shall flee at the threat of one, and at the threat of five you shall flee, till you are left as a pole on top of a mountain, and as a banner on a hill. Therefore the Lord will wait, that he may be gracious to you, and therefore he will exalt or he will be exalted that he may have mercy on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait on Clearly this is a significant text in the context of how they had been seeking salvation, seeking protection, solution to their crisis in their own works, in their own plans. Here's God's alternative. This is what they should have done. In repentance and rest, you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. What they really needed to do, instead of this frantic effort to find their own solutions, they needed to turn to God and trust in Him. They needed to quietly rest in Him. Isaiah's recipe for national security wasn't this idea of, well, what can we do? What's our plan? But what's the, what does the Lord say? Let's rest and wait on Him. I think that's very significant. Because isn't that the attitude we need to have in every situation? Do we think that the success of the church our congregation depends on our plans and programs and so when we're thinking about some situation we think about what can we do how can we how can we solve this you know the church is losing members okay what do we have to do you know you know that what, what we're preaching about this is not very popular this is kind of dry we need to change this and you know our here's some worship practices that they're not they don't go over very well so we change that and things like that we'll, we'll come up with some program oblivious to even the Lord's will in the matter but but our program will solve this problem so often we see a crisis we try to solve it our way kind of the frenetic activism instead of saying okay what does God say we always want to plan we always want to do something what can we do you know we're trying to bring somebody to the Lord or get them to grow and it's like okay what do I need to do what do I have to do well, we teach the word of the Lord. Yeah, but, but what else, what can I do? You know, how can I get them to... Well, we do what the Lord says. We just rest in Him. We trust Him. We turn to Him. We do what He says. And He's, got, he's the one in whose hands the outcome needs to be. We shouldn't try to manufacture our own results, our own salvation. I think that's really significant in this context. What are your thoughts so far? Do you have anything you want to say? Shane? Um, I think it's kind of wrong and kind of, I think it might be a point, or a point that I think of it. When he says in verse 18, For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, it reminds me of what he says in Leviticus 19 too, Be holy for I am holy. It's almost like he's you know, stabbing him and kind of turning the mind, turning the mind and saying, you're not, I'm the holy God of Israel and you're not going to command of being holy. Certainly, and it goes back to verse 11. Second time in four verses he's announced the word of the Holy One of Israel that they told him not to say anything more about. You know, he's kind of rubbing that one in their face. Um, what, was their, what was their response to Isaiah's teaching that they needed to trust and rest and repent? 
They weren't willing. They wanted to flee to Egypt on their horses. He said, well, okay, you'll flee, all right. <laughs> Probably not the way they were planning, huh? You know, and those who pursue you will be swift, and really, it won't take hardly any of the enemy to beat you. God doesn't, uh, is not limited by the quantity of, of people in the army. Obviously, that's the case. I mean, how many times have there been in the history of the Lord's people where he's given the victory to the minority and not to the majority? Um, I'm trying to remember the passage, and I'm not going to remember it right now. Maybe somebody will. Where God gave the Arameans the victory over Israel, even though they were fewer than the Israelites. Remember where it was on the page in my old Bible. <laughs> Didn't help a whole lot, did it? Uh, it's, it's back in there somewhere. It's one of, uh, I think one of Jehu's descendants. Jehoahaz or Jehoash or someone. Where the Arameans were actually a smaller in number, but God gave the victory to them because they were disobedient to the Lord. Pretty sure it's, uh, you ought to find that. Here we go. Found it. Wrong person, but I found it. Second uh, Chronicles 24.24. 24. This was... Uh, this was in Judah. This is Joash, uh, the uh, descendant of Ahaziah. But uh, in verse 24, indeed the army of the Arameans came with a very with a small number of men. Yet the Lord delivered a very great army into their hands because they'd forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers. Thus they executed judgment on Joash. So here's a situation where Judah's got a lot more people in their army. God gives the victory to a very small Aramean army as a judgment against Judah. That's kind of what he's saying here. It won't take hardly anybody to be able to conquer God's people because they haven't relied on him. He'll give the victory to who he wants to. And so, verse 18, what does the Lord want to do? But their wickedness is forcing God to wait. He longs to be gracious to you. He waits to have compassion on you. You know, a lot of times in the Bible, there's the question that God's people ask, how long? The answer here is, whenever you're ready. God is waiting to be able to bless until their spiritual condition will allow it. Until they're willing to turn to him and trust in him and quit trying to do things their own way. Comments and questions? Yes, Logan. It's kind of, this is kind of making me think about the two different situations you can find in God. You either fork out of your against God and in Israelite's case at this point, you see how when they're, when they're against God, God can defeat them with a very small army, such as happened in the Arameans case. And also, God can take, like in the example of when uh, Jonathan inquired of the Lord when he was with his armor bearer, and they went into the Philistines and destroyed an entire, just about the entire army with just two people, and because the Lord was with them. And it's not so, it wasn't because Jonathan and his armor bearer was so great because they inquired of the Lord before they went out to make sure it was okay. And I think that's the thing that the Israelites are missing here with their previous battles. It wasn't, the reason they won it wasn't because their army was great. It was because they inquired of God first. Exactly. That is the point. If we are victorious, it's the Lord, not our army that did it. That's exactly right. So John. how do we draw the line um, when we can't inquire and get an answer, you know, how do we judge whether our success is from ourselves or a gift from God? Good question. What What's the answer? How do we know if the success is from God or from ourselves? Same? Yeah. I think so. 
I think we give God the glory for it anyway, because even if it is um, that we ourselves are done, it's with the abilities that He's given to us. Maybe. What about this? Did we do it the Lord's way or not? Oh, that's true. Did we trust in Him? Did we did we submit to Him? I mean, if we're serving according to the Lord's revealed will, He is the author of the success. Now, if we're doing it our own way, whatever apparent success there is, is probably only apparent, and the Lord will bring us down. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting when you get to the very last part of verse 18. It says, how blessed are all those who long for God. And you have to ask the question, where do the blessings come from? Well, obviously, they come from God. And we're, we're asking the question about uh, when we're successful, uh, how do we know if it's us from God? And... and First off, all good things come from God. Um, and the second thing is, and this is a great challenge of life, is to just realize our successes don't always come, are, are not always um, our victories, the victories that we see, the victories that we want. Sometimes our blessings and our successes come out of our failures. Isn't that true? Yeah, absolutely. If we only saw the whole picture, I mean, what a blessing that uh, Joseph was sold into slavery and ended up in prison. But who would have thought it at the time? At the same time, though, I think it takes a lot of self-examination because you look at a lot of, a lot of uh, denominational uh, programs that grow so rapidly and they, they attribute that straight to God. And they're like, God has blessed us with this growth. But really, it's the gymnasium where you know all the focuses on social things that is making them grow. So I mean, I, I don't know if you can self-examine yourself enough. I mean, it really takes honesty, and I mean, because you can attribute things to God that that uh, you know God might not be. Well, think about this. Colossians 2.19 Not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. In the human body is every growth positive? <laughs> we know that, don't we? Yeah, I mean, there's a few, few of you who would like to grow, but uh, certain growth is uh, not a good thing, whether it's horizontal or whether it's cancerous, you know? And uh, not every growth is from God. I mean, there is growth. Uh, Satan will provide some growth temporarily uh, for uh, Jeroboam and the golden calf worship. For Ahab and the Baal worship. But it's not a growth from God. Growth from God follows the will of God. We, I will say this maybe in other ways, but I think it's important for us not to make the goal growth. The goal is glorifying God and submitting to Him. That may lead to growth, it may lead to shrinkage. Who knows? In Isaiah's case, it didn't lead to growth. You know, he didn't increase his followers by preaching the word of the Lord, but he glorified God. That's our goal. Other thoughts and comments through 18? Shane? It reminds me also of, you know, in my life and with my folks and with others, they seem sometimes they say, you know, God seems so distant from me. Why is God so distant from me? And even in my life, I feel like I'm distant from God. Because I think I'm going to blame that on God. Like, it's God's fault that I'm not as close to Him as I think I should be. And it kind of goes to us, John, said, John was saying, kind of a little bit differently. But we need to inspect ourselves and see why we're not close to God. It's not God's fault. That's not God's fault. He wants to bless us, as we've been saying. He wants to be close to us, but we've got to take the steps. We've got to obey Him. And we're not going close to God. We can't let him know. It's not his fault. We've got to respect ourselves and see what's wrong with something that we need to change. Sure. J.D. Uh, this conversation kind of reminds me of uh, there are people, unfortunately, you know, that say they're well off financially. And of course, they attribute that to God. God has blessed me. But they're really well off financially because they don't have time for church or for their family. You know, they've made the decision to. Uh, put their efforts there, so of course they're going to make some money. 
but you said that's not God's will for them to be doing that. Uh, it would be God's will for them to do it His way. And I guess it's really false to attribute that blessing to God because it's really not a blessing. It's masking that they should be putting their life in a different direction. Yes, reminds me of Hosea 12.8. Ephraim said, Surely I've become rich. i found wealth for myself, and all my labors they will find in me no iniquity, which would be sin. I'm rich, therefore I'm right. No. You know, the riches are not a sign necessarily of God's uh, approval. There's only one way. I mean, we talked earlier about other, other things that may. God uses me. Oh, God uses me to teach people, and God uses me to do this, so therefore I must be doing right. No. Everything that we've said so far has come back to the one, only one way to know if we're right with God. Yeah. That's exactly right. Go back to, uh, what is it, uh, uh, 28 verse um, 17. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the level. God's standard is justice and righteousness. You measure up to God's justice and God's righteousness, it's right. Anything else is wrong. That's the standard. And the employ of a godly one who knows you may, may be helpful in that situation as well because the, where, where we are blind ourselves, someone else may be able to see and share with us more clearly. That's a good point. Sometimes it's helpful to open ourselves up to honest evaluation of spiritual people. Reminds me, Michael mentioned the other day, yesterday, I think, or about the plumb line. If we are the plumb line, if we are our plumb line, we're always vertical. You know, we're always, everybody else is the ones that are leaning because, because we're standing straight. Yes. One other thing I like here is interesting. He says, we're going to flee. Okay, flee. Oh, we're going to be on fast horses. Go right ahead. Then the pursuers will be fast. <laughs> Whatever you want to... God can well, trump any card we've got. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Logan? There's, it's a, I've looked at how people misuse God's name for telling them to do things. There's, uh, where I attend, there's right next door to us, there's another so-called church that we got a letter from the minister or pastor or whatever saying that he had been up at, if I remember right, he said at 3 a.m. he had been up all night praying and fasting and the Holy Spirit came upon him and told him to give back to the community. So he was, the Holy Spirit apparently told him to put together this event to where anybody, everybody who walks in gets free one gift cards. Well, yeah, and you know, certainly um, it's possible to attribute things to God or to attribute, to say that, well, this must be what God's saying with this that's not. It reminds me when David had delivered Keilah, the city of Keilah from the Philistines, and that's where he was in 1 Samuel 23:7, Saul was told that David had come into Keilah and Saul said, God has delivered him into my hand for he shut himself in by entering a city with double gates and bars. <laughs> so Saul's like, oh, God, God's given David over so I can kill him. Well, there's a lot of times when we have our own will and we try to say, well, that's what God's saying. That's what God wants. It's not what he says. But it's what we think he wants. It's what we feel like his will would be. That's not the standard. That's back to making ourselves the plumb line. The standard is God's objective revelation, not my subjective idea of, well, I'm sure God likes this. Other questions or comments through verse 18? Alan. I just think it's kind of interesting in verse 18 how in the first part it says, Therefore the Lord longs to be gracious to you. And in the end it says, How blessed are those who long for him. Amen. So God longs for us, we long for him. Alright, how about uh, 19 to 26? For people shall dwell in Zion Jerusalem, you shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. 
as soon as he hears it, he answers you. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore, but your eyes shall see your teacher, and your ears shall hear a word behind you, saying, This is the way, walk in it, when you turn to the right or when you turn to the left. Then you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver and your gold-plated metal images. You will scatter them as unclean things. You will say to them, Be gone. And you will give rain for the seed of which you sow the bread, with which you sow the ground, and bread, the produce of the ground, will be rich and plenteous. In that day your livestock will graze in large pastures, and the oxen, the oxen, and the donkeys that work the ground will eat seasoned fodder, which has been winnowed with shovel and pork. And on every lofty mountain and every high hill there will be brooks running with water in the day of the, of the great slaughter when the towers fall. Moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be sevenfold as the light of seven days, in the day when the Lord binds up the brokenness of his people and heals the wounds inflicted by his blood. Okay, so this is what the Lord longs to do when the people finally turn to him. He can show compassion in these ways. You see the Lord in several different roles here. You see the Lord responding to their cry in verse 19. And the Lord being a what in verses 20 and 21? Teacher. A teacher. And how are they responding to the words of the teacher? Yeah, they're hearing it. You know, he's behind them whispering a word in their ear and they turn to the right, to the left. They're sensitive to the Lord's directions. I mean, if the Lord's going to be our teacher, we have to listen to him. We follow as a submissive pupil. And that means our own inventions, the idols, what were they doing with those? Throwing them away as if they were something repulsive, an impure thing. Be gone. We can only receive God's blessings when we're willing to give up our own efforts, as we keep saying, and submitting and trusting in God as the teacher. Then look at what God does in verse 23 and 24, 25. What does He give? He will bless them with uh, rain and abundance. Yes, the very things that they turn to the idols to get. You know, fertility, good crops, God will provide when they turn to Him. He is the one who is the source of rain and of bountiful harvest. And in verse 26, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, the light of the sun seven times brighter. God will provide brilliant light, abundant light, as he binds up the fracture of his people and heals the bruise he has inflicted. So you see the Lord in so many roles. The Lord is teacher, the Lord is provider, the Lord is healer. When they turn to him, he's waiting to be this for them. He's waiting to be gracious and compassionate to them. He wants to be able to bless them in these ways. Comments and questions? Twenty-seven to thirty-three. Well, Twenty-five kind of reminds me the comments that, that have been made in their history where they, uh, they they were so idolatrous that after every green tree and on every on every high hill under every green tree there was this idol just <coughs> at least it wasn't from God. It's just encouraging now to remember chapter two and the streams that. Yes, and it is rather remarkable to have streams running with water on every lofty mountain and high hill. Isn't that the place where you don't expect a river? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mountaintop stream. <laughs> but with the Lord, He provides blessings where we least expect them. Question? Yes. About the blessings, it's, it seems like in the Old Testament a lot of the blessings are more physical, and then in the New Testament some are more spiritually or spiritual blessings. Is there a reason for that? Or? Yeah, I think that's part of God's plan. 
think he's sort of leading them with the law as the tutor, the schoolmaster, the guardian, whatever you want to say, kind of training them in that way to appreciate the spiritual blessings. I don't think that's an exclusive thing, but I think that is a generalization that's valid. Other thoughts? Shane? The thing that Michael said reminded me when you come up, I'll say it, have these inventions, these idols, it reminds me so much of Ecclesiastes, chapter 7, verse 29. It says, truly, this only have I found that God made man upright, but they've shot out many schemes or inventions. Mm-hmm. They're looking wrong looking for things that are greater than God or that will give us satisfaction and find That's right. Other thoughts? 27 to 33. Behold, the name of the Lord comes from a remote place, burning in his anger and dense in his smoke. His lips are filled with indignation, and his tongue is like a consuming fire. His breath is like an overflowing torrent which reaches to the neck, to shake the nations back and forth in the sleeve, and to put in the jaws of the people the bridle which leads to ruin. You will have songs in the night when you keep the festival. The gladness of heart as when you marches to the sound of the flute, and to go to the mountain of the Lord, to the rock of Israel. And the Lord will cause his voice of authority to be heard, and the descending of his arm to be seen in fierce anger, and in the flame of a consuming fire, in cloudbursts, downpour, and hailstorms. For all at the voice of the Lord, Assyria will be terrified. When he strikes with the rod, and every bow of the rod, every blow of the rod, and the punishment which the Lord will lay on him, will he be with the music of the tambourines and the lyres and in the battles, brainishing weapons, and he will fight them. For Tobit has long been ready, indeed, it has been prepared for the king. He has made it deep and large, a fire of fire with plenty of wood. The breath of the Lord, like a torrent of grindstone, set it afire. How do you see God here? <coughs> Angry? Angry and vengeful. And acting as a... Vindicator. Vindicator. Warrior. He is coming down... Wow! With smoke and fire and brimstone and determination to punish his enemies in his fierce anger. Uh, It's very powerful. A powerful passage in that sense. Um, Who's the enemy in this passage? Assyria. This is still a part of the blessings. God longs to be compassionate. He longs to be their teacher, their provider, their healer, their warrior to vindicate them and to bring down their enemies, the Assyrians. Now, do you see um, the uh, means the Lord uses here? Maybe two or three things you could see in terms of, of how is it, what, what, what sort of uh, means does God use to execute this vengeance? <laughs> Nature? Yes, perhaps. Storm? What else? Descending arm. Okay. Is arm descending? Several parts of the body. What part does he mention most? Yes. Do you see that? Find, Find the references. Find the verses where it mentions something related to his words. What does it say? Well, what word does he use? Cause his voice. His voice. The voice of authority. What else? Voice of the Lord. Voice of the Lord in thirty-one. What else do you see? Breath of the Lord in thirty-three. Breath of the Lord in thirty-three. Good. What else? Twenty-seven. His what? Lips and his tongue. And where else? Twenty-eight is breath. Do you see how much emphasis there is? On the means God uses to execute this judgment is his words. Whether it's his lips, his tongue, his breath, his voice. The idea is God decrees the destruction of his enemies. It is so true that what we see in the Bible is easy activity of God. 
he easily brings down his enemies. Larry's fanning are, how many are too warm? Okay, why don't you open the door a little bit more, Shane? Maybe you should open a little more. Those who are too cold, there's several uh, chairs over here. You can enjoy them. <laughs> All right. Um, so, I mean, you know, it, it's just so impressive that God can do all these things by His Word. He can send the terrifying judgments. Now, what do you see as the response of God's people to this? Exactly. Look at 29. Look at 32. They are uh, singing and playing and, and being joyful at this terrible judgment of God because of course it's a blessing to them when God judges Assyria their enemy really this is showing them if they stop and listen they don't need to go to Egypt for fear of Assyria God can do the job Egypt can't comments and questions Oh, Topheth, wasn't that where they uh, kept like fires burning sort of the city and like, dumped it's the altar of Moloch? Yeah, so I mean the irony is the king's going to be thrown into the false god's fire. Yeah. And so it's going to be Okay. And that's where they, they would like throw the, the idols, the god idols, they would go into that and they would burn them up. So I was wondering uh, how that connected. Uh, that's helpful. Alright, that is. Okay. Jeremiah 7.31 talks about that. 31 is 32. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. What does it mean uh, in 32? I get a strange image with uh, that the Lord is uh, beating them feet in the sound of tambourine. <laughs> yeah, the celebration to the Lord's judgment. Right? You know, and every blow of the rod of punishment which the Lord will lay on him will be with the music of tambourines and lyres, and in battles, brandishing weapons, he will fight them. The people celebrate as the Lord gains the victory. They rejoice in the results of this battle. Other comments? Yes, Revelation 19 especially. Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. 19.3 of Revelation. Or going to the Lord Himself, finding their security in God as the rock. Yeah, I do too. Other thoughts? Yes, David. Um, verse 28, when it talks about uh, his breath being like a string that reaches up to the neck, just like you know, the Euphrates reached up to the neck. Uh, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, good comparison. Back from uh, chapter 7, of chapter 8, uh, 8, verse 8, I think. Other comments? So, kind of, um, I don't know, in some ways, summarizing what we've seen in chapter 30. Chapter 31, verses 1 to 3. Those are those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, trust in chariots because they are men, and horsemen because they are very strong. But they do not look to the Holy One of Israel, nor seek the Lord. Now he also is wise and will bring disaster. It does not retract his words, but will arise against the house of evildoers and against the help of the workers with iniquity. And the Egyptians are men and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. So the Lord will stretch out his hand, and he who helps will stumble, he who is helped will fall, and all of them will come to an end together. Doesn't this really epitomize his message? What's he telling him not to do? 
Don't go to Egypt or or chariots. Why not? Yes, they are just people. They are just flesh. Look to the Holy One of Israel. Seek the Lord. That's not. That's what they were not doing. But He's the one that can deliver. It's so misplaced to trust in anything but the Lord. When we place our trust in buildings or programs or eloquent preachers or impressive compromises with the world and we think we're going to do well because we've got whatever technique, no, it's the Lord. Put your trust in God. Don't go to Egypt. Don't rely on horses. Don't rely on chariots. I love verse 2. Yet he also is wise. He knows a little something too. <laughs> Isn't that, uh, you know, ironic? Uh, you know. <laughs> wow. He knows it all. Trust him. God will determine the results of the battle. Not the Egyptians. They're men and not God. Their horses are flesh and not spirit. The Lord will stretch out his hand. You see that stretched out hand again. And he will bring down the wicked together. That lesson. Trust God. Don't trust anything else but God. When we rely on human resources of any type, we've missed it. You have to work to think that through in every situation to make sure you're trusting in God and not in things of your own, you know, works, your own achievements. Comments and questions? You absolutely trust in God in everything and all things you do, but you have to do your part too. What does that mean? What God instruction to do. Of course. That's part of trusting in God. What we shouldn't do is trust in things God has not said. Or God has even forbidden. Other thoughts? Good summary of where we're at is one through three. Four to nine. For thus says the Lord to me, as the lion or the young lion growls over his prey, against which a band of shepherds is called out, and he will not be terrified at their voice, nor disturbed at their noise. So will the Lord of hosts come down to wage war on Mount Zion and on its hill. Like flying birds, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will pass over and rescue it. Return to him from whom you have deeply defected, O sons of Israel. For in that day every man will cast away his silver idols and his gold idols, which your sinful hands have made for you as a sin. And the Assyrian will fall by the sword, not of man. And a sword will not, not of man will devour him, so he will not escape the sword. And his young men will become forced laborers. His rock will pass away because of panic, and his princes will be terrified at the standard, declares the Lord, whose fire is in Zion, and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. So we compare God here to a couple of animals. In four to what? Now, we are comparing God to a lion because? Exactly. God destroys his enemies. He's like a lion to his foes. So he protects his people as a lion devouring their opponents. What do we compare him to in verse 5? A bird. What does a bird do? Protects. Protects. You know, that's really true. You know, a lot of times a bird will get really defensive of anybody messing with their young. Very, you know, watchful about that. And so it's an excellent illustration of how concerned God is to take care of his people. So God's like a lion to their enemies and like a bird protecting them. That's what God... 
Why trust in the Egyptians or in horses or in chariots? You've got the Lord that you can trust in. Much better choice than the Egyptians, that's for sure. Or any other peoples we could trust in. So turn back to God, verse 6. The one from whom they deeply defected. They turned so far away from him. Come back to him. Throw away your idols. They're worthless. Uh, because the Assyrian will fall. In verse 8. By what? Yeah. See the point? It's not going to be because of the Egyptians. Or because of your sword. It's not going to be man's sword that's going to bring the Assyrian down. A sword not of man will devour him. He will not escape the sword, but it's not going to be a human sword. And uh, his young men will become forced laborers. The Assyrians will end up being your slaves. His rock, what they, what the Assyrian relied on, will pass away because of panic. And his princes will be terrified at the standard, declares the Lord. So the Lord will bring the Assyrian down. Trust him, turn to him, rely on him. And don't trust on yourselves, the Egyptians, horses, or anything else you want to trust in. Comments and questions? Anything else on 31? Yes, John. It's amazing that Isaiah is such a big book but such a simple concept. And I just can't... I mean, Isaiah must be exhausted of preaching the exact same thing in numerous different ways of saying it. And, I mean, I'm amazed that God can think of this many ways to say the same thing. (laughs) That's a good comment. I like that. That's exactly right. The Lord does that too, doesn't he? Um, I suspect if they had been a bit more receptive, it wouldn't have necessitated quite so many different approaches. I'm glad you see that point though. I think that, that helps us when we can see the coherence of the book. Very good. Other thoughts? You've seen his flag raised several times, but it's normally rallying troops. Is this the first time that I can't tell you I can't come up with another place before this that that's true but I'm not sure other questions or comments yeah I think that's a good good uh, application of that yeah absolutely Other thoughts? What's his furnaces in Jerusalem? Maybe this is back to the idea of the altar hearth, the aerial. And uh, ultimately, it's from Jerusalem that he burns up his enemies. Alright, comments and questions? chapter 32 verses 1 to 8 Behold a king will reign righteously and princes will rule justly and each will be like a refuge from the wind and a shelter from the storm like streams of water in a dry country like the shade of a huge rock in a parched land Then the eyes of those who see will not be blinded, and the ears of those who hear will listen. And the mind of the hasty will discern the truth, and the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak clearly. No longer will the fool be called noble, or the rogue be spoken of as generous. For a fool speaks nonsense, and his heart inclines toward wickedness, to to practice ungodliness and to speak error against the Lord, to keep the hungry person unsatisfied and to withhold drink from the thirsty. As for a rogue, his weapons are evil. He devises wicked schemes to destroy the afflicted with slander, even though the needy one speaks what is right. But the noble man devises noble plans, and by noble plans he stands. Look at something. Look at the first of chapter 28, chapter 29. Chapter 30, chapter 31, chapter 33. 
And that sixth and the only uh, chapter that doesn't start with woe is chapter 32. Chapter 32 is showing the true solution. Here is what God offers to his people. A king that will reign righteously. Is that some new concept for us in Isaiah? Where have we seen that already? In chapter 9 and chapter 11. I believe he's talking about the Messiah. Perhaps the princes talk about the those who are with Christ, ruling with him. But I think the king is the Messiah. And that's where our trust ought to be. That is the proper solution for everything. Turn to the Lord, his king's righteous rule. As he provides refuse and shelter and provision. He is the source of our security, not anything else. He is competent to provide what we need. Uh, there's nothing else that we need and in his government look at the change that takes place in 3 and 4 what what happens to the people under the reign of this righteous king reversal of chapter 6 they have their eyes open now their ears here and they are discerning they have spiritual perception and they now evaluate people according to their true character. Verse 5, no longer will the fool be called noble, or the rogue be spoken of as generous. But here, each one will be called by its, its true name, evaluated properly. For the fool speaks nonsense, verse 6, and so forth. The rogue, his weapons are evil, verse 7. But the noble man, verse 8, devises noble plans, and by noble plans he stands. So the judgment will be according to truth. They won't, they won't be deceived by appearances. It'll be because they're going to have their eyes open. They're going to have spiritual clarity because they're submitting and listening to the rule of this righteous king. What a blessing to have God's righteous rule. Alright, comments and questions. Uh, if, if the king in verse 1 is Messiah, then who are the princes? Those who reign with him, maybe the apostles, maybe, you know, other Christians. Other comments and questions to raise? Say them like it. I think the American standard reads nobleman. My version says generous man. I'm not really understanding that version. Well, I think what he's saying is every person will be seen for who they are. The fool for his wickedness, his ungodliness, the rogue for his wicked schemes, his destruction, and the noble man who devises noble plans will stand. You'll we'll see him as the one who perseveres, as the one who's noble and righteous. I think he's just saying we're going to see everybody for who they really are. So we have contrast between those that are doing evil and being seen for the evil, and here's someone that is doing a good thing and being seen for the evil. Exactly. Exactly. Versus those in chapter 5 who call evil good and good evil. Yes. Very good, exactly. Micah. Would you say, would you say about verses 3 and 4 again? Are, those supposed to, are we supposed to think of what we talked about earlier about the people who refuse to hear and so God closes their hearts and then they don't have any the ones you don't want to hear then aren't able to hear whereas the ones who do yeah well I would say that in the Messiah's reign he reverses the situation from chapter 6 the eyes of those who see will not be blind the ears of those who hear will listen they'll discern the blessing in Christ's kingdom is people will see it's it's the opposite in, in, un, under Christ it open, the revelation opens your eyes. It opens your ears. It gives you clearer perception of, of right and wrong. 
just the opposite of what happens when the people have no allegiance to God. Then the presentation of the truth closes their heart and stops up their ears and blinds their eyes. Logan. This uh, may be a little bit off base of what we've just been talking about, but whenever God hardens somebody's heart or controls the nations or uh, forces them not to hear or whatever, how exactly does that work? Because I wouldn't think that uh, with humans supposed to have... Uh, well, there might be several things to say. In the context of Isaiah, it looks to me like the way Isaiah was hardening their hearts was by preaching the truth. He preaches the message that hardens their hearts because they didn't want to hear it. And it made them even more resentful and hardened against the truth. So I think in Isaiah, that's how Isaiah 6 hardens. Um, There may be other times that God does other things. God's hardening, like with Pharaoh, is a punishment for Pharaoh's stubbornness, an unwillingness to have a humble heart. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 9 through 12. We don't love the truth. He'll send the deluding influence so we'll believe what is false. So, anytime God's heart, God hardens, it's not that He makes it to where we can't understand or we can't have a sensitive heart. It's that He punishes us for our stubbornness by hardening our heart. Here in Isaiah, I think, by His message. By the same message. Yeah. Good point. Other thoughts, comments, questions? This is also true, you know, like later on we see that ones who had got had pardoned pray that they, or Isaiah prays for them that they would now be. Their hearts would be softened again, and they would now, the Lord would actually be more specific than again. Um, what are you thinking of? Uh, absolutely. Okay. I'll think about that. But obviously, what the Lord wants is to people to respond. Uh, he's. He, I think what Wayne said, that the message of Jesus. It both hardened and softened. It depended on the character of the heart of the person who was listening. Other comments? Questions? Yeah, yes. Yeah, that'll depend on the interpretation of 63. I really think that's the bad, self-righteous people trying to blame their state on God. I don't think this is really Isaiah talking. Oh, okay. But we're not going to get to 63 today, so. (laughs) No, no problem. So it depends on your interpretation of that chapter. I may change my mind by next year. But that's what I believe this year. Alright, anything else? Alright, I think we'll take a break for uh, 15 minutes or so.